Well, it's brilliant to be back. I've been looking forward to this all week. Mind you, standing up here, I can see what Ashley's talking about. There's a serious, ama serious amount of confectionery down there. Far more Freddo bars than we've got adults in the church. But hey, <laughs> that's pretty good. Well, we've read the passage together, and uh, I've called it Setting Sail for Rome, because this is the start of a story which takes you right through to the end of Acts, where suddenly it gets a little bit more interesting again. It might help if I put this on, actually. Just one second. There we go. Yep. And uh, it's still not working. Great. Excellent. Uh, well, it's not. I think you're going to have to do it, probably, if you don't mind. This means that um, uh, I'm going to be constantly casting meaningful glances towards the back there. I'm sorry about that. I got back late last night from a trip abroad, and uh, I have all my stuff packed up and so on. But the clicker that I normally use is, we hope, somewhere in it, but we couldn't find it this morning. And uh, as a result, we're trying to sort of make it go as we go, but this is not going to work for us. Okay, so can we have the next slide then, please? And uh, all it says on this next one is, and now the story gets dramatic again. Because you might remember that um, over the last couple of chapters, Paul has just been in one place. He's been kicking his heels in Caesarea under a uh, military guard while they decide what to do with him. And he's appealed to Caesar, and he's got this right as a Roman citizen that he can go across to Rome and be tried there. And suddenly things start moving again. But over two chapters, it's mainly been speeches. Speeches by Paul, speeches by his opponents, speeches by the Roman governor, speeches by various orators that the, the Jews pay to make statements. And you know, oh, this has been such a good book so far, you know, with so much action in it. And now suddenly it's all got to be calm. Well, now here, a couple of chapters before the end, it all gets into action. And as we'll see over the next uh, Sunday, uh, next week as well, it really gets to in, into a, a, a whirl of violent activity before it comes to an end, which is very satisfying. Um, but on the other hand, a bit surprising. Can we have the next slide, please? Uh, what was Luke trying to show? Because this is an unusual thing. I mean, it's as if you've been reading a Mills and Boone novel, you know, in which boy meets girl and girl meets boy. And you know how the plot of all those books go. At first they misunderstand one another and uh, there's all sorts of heartbreak and, uh, and, and uh, they, they, they can't stand the sight of one another. And then, of course, the light dawns and they all fall in love and in the last chapter melt into one another's arms. Well, this is as if in the second last chapter they're just about to get together, you know, uh, walking across the road in slow motion uh, towards one another and then a bus comes along and knocks him down. And then he's in hospital right through to nearly the end. So the end happens, and they do melt into one of the arms, but there's a completely weird thing that happens first. Well, this storm is a bit like that, isn't it? Because Paul has been on the way to Rome for so long, and here you think, oh gosh, chapter 27, we're nearly done. Now this is all going to be about how he arrives in Rome, and uh, there God has him triumphantly tried in front of, of Caesar. He's acquitted, and he's able to spread the gospel in Rome, and the church grows, and everything's wonderful, and they all live happily ever. But they don't, do they? <laughs> and suddenly you've got this massive, detailed account of the storm. Why is this happening? I think there are three reasons. So next slide. The first one is, life, life, Luke's trying to show that life as a servant of God is rarely boring for long. <laughs> Lots of people think that Christians lead the, the safest, most domestic lives possible. You know, the most exciting thing that happens in a Christian life is going to bed at nine o'clock with a cup of cocoa and a digestive biscuit. And of course, you only do that on Wednesdays because you wouldn't want to get too excited. But uh, it's not like that. Christian life is an up and down life, and there are more stresses and strains in it than most people realize. It's not simply a matter of, you know, 
a trust in your God to see that everything's all right and in living the safest life that you possibly can. Sometimes you're pitchforked into adventures you would rarely expect. And one thing that almost any Christian would tell you, if you're not a Christian here, uh, any Christian would tell you is that life has become much more colorful and interesting since becoming a Christian because you can't guarantee what's coming next. And if you serve God, if you try to help to achieve the purposes of his kingdom, then you will find you're in all sorts of adventures time and time again. Second thing, next slide, would be that uh, the way God chooses isn't always the most straightforward way. That's another thing that Luke wants to make clear. God sometimes takes us through all kinds of uh, pathways that we wouldn't choose for ourselves. So you think, okay, now Paul has got to, got to Rome, and then the gospel has got to spread from there. So safe journey, smooth passage. Two weeks later, he arrives, greeted by the church leaders, and everything starts happening. Not a bit of it. God has one more adventure for Paul. Now, he's been shipwrecked at least three times before this happens. So when this happens to him, I'm saying, oh, not again. Lord, what are you playing at? What's going on here? And sometimes God sends us through unusual ways to achieve his purposes. And there may be some reasons behind this shipwreck which we can only dimly realize. I'll talk about them in a minute, that I can see reasons why this happens. But anyhow, um, that's the second thing. And I think Luke also stresses this shipwreck at the end of the book so much because... Thank you, success. She's becoming psychic at the back there. She's putting it on before I even realized. This is great. The connection's working well. Mm, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, the third thing is success comes when you just trust him and just keep moving forward. Paul doesn't get daunted. Paul doesn't give up. He doesn't become depressed. He doesn't sulk and say, Lord, I thought you were taking me that way, and now we're going this way. No, he just can't come on. And that's brilliant, isn't it? Because he's showing us at the end of the book, Luke is showing us that... Uh, if you want to achieve success in following God and doing his will, you just have to keep moving forward. Just carry on. And God will bring you through triumphantly at the end of it, even if he seems to be leading you down a cul-de-sac first. So I think that's why we get this story so much. Right, let's move on and look at the story, the bit that we've actually got. There are three things to notice in the story this morning. And the first of those, quite simply, is that Paul wasn't happy. He didn't get to do the voyage at, that you, 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 or the part of the voyage that you read about at the end of the story. He thought it was a bad move and he warned them, we're going to get shipwrecked. And they didn't really believe him. Second thing you notice is Paul wasn't alone. This wasn't something that God put him through on his own. And you'll find in the toughest times in the storms of life, God doesn't leave you abandoned. It's not just that he's there. He sends people along to be with you and strengthen you and support you. And at every stage of this journey, Paul has got people who stand behind him and strengthen him and help him. Third thing is that Paul wasn't silent. He didn't just sit in the depths of the ship and think, oh dear, they're taking the wrong idea here. No, he goes out and says, look, guys, I do this. We're going to get shipwrecked. We can't do it this way. And so he doesn't keep his mouth shut and think, well, I'm a prisoner of the Roman Empire on my way to trial before Caesar, so I, I'm not a fisherman anyway or a sales sailor or whatever, so I better let them just get on with it. No, he doesn't. He does intervene. And we'll see why that happens in a moment. So let's look at the first of those, shall we? Paul wasn't happy. Why is that? Well, it's because there was a time for safe sailing in the year in the Roman Empire. And it was generally reckoned to be from the 27th of May to the 14th of September. Those were the dates in which it was okay to sail. I remember driving across uh, from Germany to, to, to Austria um, late on a Sunday evening. Now, over the weekend in 
at Germany and Austria in those days. I'm not sure if it's still the case now, but over the weekend, you were not allowed to drive a heavy vehicle on the autobahn. And so you, you see all these carrier lorries, transporters, things like that, parked up by the side of the road in the rest places. And as we drove across, uh, about 10 o'clock in the evening, I think it was on a, on a Sunday evening, it becomes legal to drive again. And suddenly you're driving down this completely clear autobahn at one minute to 10. <laughs> and then a minute later, everything comes out and starts driving. You see all these heavy lorries getting in front of you. And uh, it's a bit like that uh, in the Roman Empire. You were not really supposed to sail, except in the safe period, 27th May to 1st September. But you could, uh, you could sail after that because the next period was the inadvisable period from September through to November. And it was okay to sail then if you wanted to take the risk, but it wasn't safe. The time when you wouldn't sail at all is the uh, period after. And from the 11th of November till the 10th of March, it was too dangerous. You might wonder, looking at that, what happens between March and March? No, not yet, not yet. But what happens, she's, she's getting too keen at the back there. Um, what uh, happens between March and May? And the answer is, well, that's another inadvisable period, but you could if you really wanted to. Now, ships would sometimes take risks because Rome needed lots of grain to keep the population fed. And that all came from Egypt. <laughs> and so, so ships would take the risk at difficult times of year going round the coast uh, to try to get to Rome. Because after all, if they were the only grain ship that arrived that week, they could charge what they wanted for their grain. So it was a big risk, but financially there would be rewards. But there was one time when you really couldn't sail, and that was the uh, period at the top there. Yeah, we can have it now, thank you, which is called the Mare Clausum, which means the sea is closed. It's quite interesting reading that this, this year, isn't it? Because do you remember a few weeks ago, Dominic Manab was being slated in all the papers for being on the beat in Crete, which we're going to be hearing about this morning, uh, on holiday when the Afghanistan crisis was at its worst. And the excuse he gave to the papers was, well, I was in the hotel, but I wasn't lounging on the beach. I was taking phone calls from home, things like that. I couldn't have been on the beach anyway because the sea was closed. And all the papers made fun of it. You can't close the sea. That's ridiculous. What a daft excuse. But that's exactly what that phrase, mare clausum, means. The sea is closed. Nobody travels in that period. Now, Paul, uh, on the first part of his journey, as you'll have noticed from our reading, wasn't having a good time because it was, it was difficult sailing that first bit of the journey. They only uh, managed to reach Cnidus with, with, with difficulty. And when then they had to sail down to the south of Crete. We'll have a look at the map in a minute. And uh, um, that it, it says that uh, the, uh, much time had be, been lost, and by the time they reached Fairhavens, sailing had already become dangerous because now it was after the fast. The fast is the uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in Jerusalem, and that year we know it was on October the 5th. <laughs> so this is well after October the 5th, and you can see that's well into the inadvisable period. They've still got most of the journey to go to get to Rome. So they would definitely be into the dangerous Mare Clausum period before the ship docked near Rome. So Paul can see what the difficulty is, and he's not happy about this. Next slide, please. This is just a, a map to show you uh, how, how the journey goes. The first thing is, if we have a quick slide, is that they had a short trip from Caesarea up the coast to Sidon. Just a few miles, really, not that far, 70 miles perhaps. 
And there they stop, and you remember it says at the start of the chapter that the, the centurion let Paul off the ship here. Julius' kindness to Paul allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide his needs. That's brilliant. But that was the easy bit. The next bit, as you can see, the next bit in white takes you on to Myra. Myra. Uh, no, 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 sorry. No, one back, thank you. Uh, that, that bit that we've got on already takes you up the, round the coast to Myra. Now, this was a difficult bit. Because one of the things that was always true around this coastline was that you had a strong west wind. And so the, the, the wind was always blowing you in towards the coast of Israel and Syria. And sailing against it in the teeth of it, it which is what they were doing, was always a difficult thing. And Paul knew because he got born around that coastline that to sail in to uh, Caesarea was easy. To sail out again always took twice as long. Anyway, they managed to battle through to, 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 to the port, port of Myra, and there the uh, centurion thought, this is never going to work. We're never going to get to Rome before the year 2021 if we go at this rate. Let's do something else. And so he switched ship, and they got in this much bigger ship, and that started out, as you can see, the next bit, thank you, uh, that started out going uh, across in the direction of, of Rome, because Rome is at the left of your picture there, and it just found it couldn't do it. And it had to go down south to get out of that west wind and round the island of Crete. And it was here that they got to, 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 to Fair Havens. Now, why is God doing this? Why didn't he just stop the winds for a bit to allow them to go across that short hop, across the open sea, to Sicily, and then up to Rome? Well, there might be some reasons for that. Let's, let's see the next slide. Hasn't Paul been in enough trouble already? <laughs> I mean, he's done all sorts of things for the sake of Christ. And, and, and this, this last episode at the end of the book of Acts, surely God would give him an even break. Are there any reasons why this shipwreck could happen? Well, as I say, I can think of a few reasons, although not the, the, they're probably not the only ones, and I, it's just speculation, really. The first thing, though, is this, quite simply. Uh, next one. That uh, Festus... No, 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 sorry, that one. Festus was going to die... Uh, soon. The, the Roman governor who'd said that Paul could be sent to Caesar was due to die in office very soon after Paul had, sent off, uh, had been sent off. And we know a bit about the next guy who came along, and he was a right piece of work. He really was. And so the next Roman governor would probably have stopped Paul going to Rome. It was important that he left now, even if the circumstances weren't ideal. So God knew what he was doing by putting Paul on the boat. Now we can see the next one. And the next reason, it seems to me, is that Malta had ever heard about Jesus. <laughs> now, we don't know what happened quite in Malta when he got there. We'll, we'll talk about that next week. He doesn't seem to have planted any churches and things like that. Maybe Julius wouldn't let him do what he normally did when he went to a foreign city. But we do know that Malta has a really, really long and strong Christian tradition, unlike any other island in the Mediterranean. There were 300 years when it was occupied by the Muslims. Uh, I think it's 400 to 700 AD. But apart from that, Malta has been the one place in the Mediterranean that has had a, a, a strong and, and consistent Christian presence. And for some reason, God wanted to take the gospel to Malta. So that was another reason that they'd be blown miles off their course, as we'll see next week, and land on the island of Malta. And there's a third reason, possibly two. Thank you. And the third reason would be that Paul needed to be made ready for Rome. He was going to stand in front of Caesar for the first time in his life. He was going to be in the entire capital of the Roman Empire, which means in those days, the capital of the world. He was going to have to face distresses and strains he'd never faced before. And God needed to have him absolutely ready for that. And by putting him through this experience, God was making sure that Paul was mentally, psychologically, spiritually, and everything else prepared 
for what was going to happen to me. So I think there could be good reasons for God taking the wrong way to make it happen, if you like. So Paul wasn't happy, but it was all part of God's plan. Second thing, if we move on, is that Paul wasn't alone. He wasn't left to this by himself. That, that first short hop on the journey up the coast to Sidon, I think that was quite important. Paul was able to land there, and the Sidon Christians were able to give him a little bit of help and support before he went on any further. That meant before the big journey, the shipwreck journey, actually started, there were people close to Paul. As he left the Holy Land and the coast of Syria, um, at, at knowing that he might never see it again, there were people around him who were able to meet his needs, who recalled all of his Christian journey so far. You see, Sidon is just a few miles from Damascus, where Paul became a Christian in the first place. He spent some years, and it wouldn't be unusual if there were people in Sidon who were with Paul in his very earliest days in Damascus. Sidon is just down the coast from Antioch as well, where Paul had spent lots of years in the church, and he'd been on the journey between Antioch and Jerusalem several times in that period, so Sidon was obviously the place where he'd stopped in, where he knew the Christians already. There are all sorts of reasons why Sidon was a good place to leave from. And Paul was given that support and that warmth uh, uh, just as he left. There must have been people in Sidon who were Christians from Tyre as well, because Tyre was just down the road from there. And you might remember a few chapters back when Paul was on his way into Jerusalem this time. He stopped in Tyre for a week. And the Christians there, again, were really good to him. And when Paul left to get the ship down to Jerusalem, they all went out onto the beach and they prayed for him. And not just the men in the church, but their wives as well, and the children. And they all followed Paul out onto the beach. They knelt down on the sand and they prayed for him. And the sailors who were standing there with the rowing boat to take him out to the ship must have thought, hmm, these are strange people, but they really care about this guy. <laughs> and so Paul saw those people again just before he went on the next leg of his journey. So that was brilliant. But he had two people with him as well. And the, 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 the next name is Luke. And Luke had been all over the place with, with Paul. Every time you, you read in the book of Acts, we did this and we went there, that means that Luke was actually there with Paul. Because sometimes he talks about they did this and they went there. That means that Luke wasn't there. But when he says we, you know that Luke is there with him. And he was with him a lot of the time. The third person was Aristarchus, a Christian from, from Macedonia, who was there on the trip as well. Now, what were they doing on the trip? Let's move on to the next one. Um, this is W.M. Ramsey, a 19th century author who was absolutely a good guy. He studied the life of Paul and the conditions of the Near East and all sorts of things that were going on more intensively than anybody has done before or since. And furthermore, he was a Scotsman, so he was obviously a good guy. But anyway, W.M. Ramsey said this, that uh, uh, if Aristarchus and Luke were with Paul, they were just along for the ride because the Romans didn't let people do that. You had to have a reason for being there. And so... Uh, says Ramsey, the only way that Aristarchus and Luke would have been allowed on board would be if everybody assumed they were Paul's slaves. <laughs> they were his personal attendants. Nobody might know what the what arrangement was between them, but because Paul was treated with honor and respect as a, uh, uh, an important person on board, he must have had servants. I mean, in those days, one wouldn't travel without one's servants, would one? And that, that, I'm sure when you go on a holiday, you take a chambermaid and bring her with you or something like that. But uh, in those days, it was, it was essential. You had to have your servants with you. Now, 
it wasn't enough just to be related to the person concerned. And, and Ramsey says that it, Pliny, uh, who was a, a Roman governor uh, of around this period, shortly afterwards, uh, talks about a man called Petrus who was brought a prisoner from Illyricum to Rome, roughly the same journey that Paul was doing. And his wife, Aria, vainly begged leave to accompany him. Several slaves were permitted to go with him as waiters, valleys, etc. And Aria offered herself to perform all their duties because she didn't want to be parted from her husband. But her prayer was refused. You wouldn't let somebody go just because somebody's loving wife. I mean, that's a ridiculous reason for letting anybody go, isn't it? So they'd have to be slaves. And so Ramsey goes on. Next one, thank you. The analogy shows how Luke and Aristarchus accompanied Paul. They must have gone as his slaves, not merely performing the duties of slaves, as Arya offered to do, but actually passing as slaves. In this way, not merely had Paul faithful friends always beside him, his importance in the eyes of the centurion was much enhanced, and that was of great importance. The narrative clearly implies that Paul enjoyed much respect during this voyage, such as a penniless traveler without a servant would never receive either in the first century or in the 19th, says Ramsey. And so Paul got some respect and, uh, uh, and uh, recognition from the Romans because Luke and Aristarchus faithfully gave themselves to support him. So what does this mean? Next, ne next slide. It means that Luke was there for a start. This is Rosalind Brown, who was the first female canon of Durham, uh, Durham Cathedral. Oh brain and gear. Sorry, the batteries are running low this morning. But uh, uh, Rosalind Brown uh, preached a, a, a marvelous sermon about Luke, and in it she said this about him. We know that Paul had a serious physical affliction that continually troubled him and was not healed by prayer, possibly that it was an eye complaint. Now, if you have someone with you who is a physician, who do you think deals with that medical problem on a regular basis? And Paul was rather in the habit of being stoned, last reported, lashes, shipwrecked, generally badly treated by his various enemies, bandits, and at times hungry, cold, and worn out. Again, who do you think patched him up and kept him on the road? Luke had enormous practical uh, value for Paul, so he went. And second Aristarchus, what about Aristarchus? What do we know about him? Well, if you follow his CV, well, that's strange. Sorry, that's, that's, it should say Aristarchus, his CV there, but something's gone wrong. Anyhow, um, Aristarchus pops up all over the, the, the book of Acts and the epistles and always in critical situations where you don't expect him to be. So if we have the, the, the details here, the first one is that he came from Thessalonica. And if you read First Thessalonians, you find that was an incredible church. It was formed in just three weeks in the, the heart of lots of opposition. And some of the Christians from Thessalonica were outstanding. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 that their faith has become talked about right through that whole Roman region. People are saying, what are these people on? What's happening here? And one of those was Aristarchus. He must have been in the church in the earliest days. He's one of the ones that's being talked about. Second, you find that uh, when Paul is in Ephesus, poor old Aristarchus finds himself dragged into the auditorium by a bunch of people who want to uh, assassinate Christians. And uh, he's, uh, there's another man there, a guy, a companion of Paul. And those two disciples are there in the auditorium. I've been in the auditorium at Ephesus, 25,000 seater. And when you stand where Aristarchus would have stood and you just look up at those, those 25,000 seats and you, you, you just hear the voices saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians, kill them, kill them. Woo! You realize what a scary moment Aristarchus went through for the sake of the gospel. Another thing about Aristarchus, 
was that he helped to guard the collected gift from the churches when Paul took it to Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem Christians didn't have much money. For various reasons, they were, they were very short, and Paul went, went over the other churches saying, look, this is your duty. Will you give to support your Christian brothers back in Jerusalem? And they gave generously. And the trouble was to carry money through the ancient world in those days was quite a risky endeavor. You couldn't just wire it to a bunch of a branch in Jerusalem. You had to carry it in actual bullion across. And so Paul chose some very trustworthy people from various different parts of the Roman Empire to go with him across to Jerusalem. And one of those, one of the elite, the cream of the crop who was picked was Aristarchus. So see, this guy, although he's quite humble and quiet, you never hear much about him, he was somebody you could rely on. And also... He spent time in prison with Paul in the toughest times at Ephesus because you find Paul mentions him as his fellow prisoner. And he was a friendly guy. When Paul writes to the Colossians, for example, the, the, the next thing is that he'd already made friends with Christians in Colossae. Now that's 50 miles down the road, at least, from Ephesus. And so Aristarchus clearly was somebody whom you could get close to, somebody who was warm, somebody who was encouraging. And so Luke and Aristarchus were probably the perfect pair to go with Paul on a journey like this. What did they do? That's the next one. I think there were three things. First of all, they shared the practical work. They were there to help Paul on the trip with all the practical jobs that needed to be doing. And remember, in those days, if you were on a Roman ship like this, um, what was not going to happen was that you got up in the morning, uh, wandered down to one of the many restaurants, selected your breakfast, a steward would come across in the uniform and say, excuse me, compliments to the captain, and would you like to join him on the captain's table for dinner tonight? It didn't happen like that. You looked after yourself. I don't know if you've ever been up to Bristol and looked like the, around the SS Great Britain. If you do, go and look at the steerage conditions where the poorer passengers live. You find they had chickens and cows and all sorts of things on the deck, kept on the deck, because you had to fend for yourself. And you had to keep your own provisions and cook for yourself on the journey. The risk of fire must have been enormous. And this is an elite ship of the 19th century. Can you imagine what it was like in the first century? Those 276 people on board had pretty much to look after themselves, except for those that were prisoners in irons um, who were much worse off than Paul, who were heading across to be gladiators or something like that, or just into a Roman prison. Somebody would have to look after them, but they didn't exactly give them five-star treatment. And so Paul had to look after himself, and they shared the practical work, almost as slaves, as, as we've seen. But it wasn't just that. Also, they shared the dangers and the worries Luke had traveled lots of places with Paul. He knew what it was like traveling around. He knew how dangerous his trip was. Aristarchus had been in a few places too by now. He was a seasoned sailor. And so when Paul got worried about the journey ahead, they shared that. And they could bear that load together. And the third thing is, they shared the practical work, the dangers and worries, but they also shared themselves. They were just there as a community. They were the only people on board who knew about Jesus. They were family. They belonged with one another. And as a result, um, they were able to support and strengthen one another in ways that only Christians can. And that, it seems to me, is a picture of what we ought to be as a church, sharing the practical work together. This church doesn't run itself magically. We need people to get stuck in in all kinds of different ways. Sharing the, 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 the dangers and the worries, praying for one another, taking one another's problems on board and making them our problems too, and sharing ourselves being willing to be open and vulnerable to other people in a way that just stresses the sense of family we've got. Anyway, we're, we're taking far too long on this one. Let's look, let's look at the last one if we can, uh, which is that Paul was not silent. He spoke out. 
That's partly, I think, because of the kind of, 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 of boat they were sailing. Let's just explain a bit of that to start with. And again, that's something slipped here, which is not too good, but never mind. First thing you notice about it, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Great is, oh dear, something's going wrong here. It was strongly built. It was capable of holding 276 people plus thousands of, 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 of tons of, well, not thousands of tons, hundreds of tons anyhow, of grain. So it was a massive, massive ship. That's the first thing you notice about it. And you might think, how does something as heavily laden as that steer itself? The answer is not very easily. It only had, next one, thank you, two sails. You can see them there. One main sail that just drove the ship along in the prevailing winds, and one at the front which you could use to direct it a little bit. Enough to get it into a harbour, but not enough to catch the various currents of wind and the change in the wind. Once you were going in one direction, it was very hard to stop it. So if you were going fast enough, driven along by the wind, and there were rocks in front, you were going to hit them. You couldn't steer it all that well. Another thing about this kind of ship was that it had a, a hull that could split under pressure. It was something that was, was bound together by bits of wood that were taking such a weight that they could, if there was too much pressure, uh, move outwards. And you'll find later <coughs> in the story that the, the sailors uh, run ropes right by the hull of the ship, even while it's sailing around, just to hold it together, because otherwise it's going to split apart. So it's a pretty dangerous journey you're on here. And another thing that you notice about the ship is that it's incapable of zigzagging quickly to use the currents around it. Well, I've really spoken about that one. Next one. Uh, you might wonder how you do steer it then, how you get any direction at all, and the answer is you've got two massive rudders. You can see one of them sticking down into the water there, and with those rudders, you're able to change direction. But you've got something that will move quickly, it's very strong, it's very heavy, it can't be turned very much. <laughs> if you're heading for a sandbank or a, a, a reef of rocks, you are in trouble. This is a fair weather ship. And so uh, what happens uh, is, is that it gets into more and more trouble. Let's just very, very quickly have a look at the next one. And uh, this is uh, Crete, the, uh, uh, as it is today, it's taken from uh, uh, Google Maps. And Paul, the next one please, is, is right up in the corner there. He's, he's being driven south, he can't get out of the west wind, so they decide to go down to the south of Crete, past Cape Salmone. They go around the corner, next one please. Oh, yeah, no, there's your strong west wind at the top there, that's it. And then you've got that red line going around there. It probably went in a bit closer to the coast than I've drawn it. But uh, uh, they get round to this place called Fair Havens. Next one. That's it there. And it's not even really a town. It just says it's close to the town of La Silla, which shows it wasn't much of a place. And uh, as you can see, it's pretty exposed there, but at least there's a harbour. And so uh, because it's in such, such horrible weather, next one, please, they decide to stay there for the winter. There is a strong wind blowing up from Africa, from the, 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 uh, the southwest uh, there. And uh, uh, that's not a good place to stay, but Paul thinks you've got to stay here. There is, it's absolutely too dangerous to go sailing on. And what they decide to do, next one, is to sail to Phoenix, which is a much better harbour. It's only 12 miles away. You go up that little bit of coastline and you're safe. Because behind Phoenix, as you can probably see, there's a slightly darker green bit. And that's, it. that's where the high mountains in Crete are, the western mountains. You get to Phoenix, and you're sheltered from the winds from all directions. Anywhere else, you're in serious trouble, especially that middle bit, <laughs> because uh, across the middle, it's low and flat, and winds from any direction can just damage your ship. So, uh, next one, please. What actually happens is that the wind starts blowing down that way, and Paul's ship is blown out to sea, narrowly misses a little island called Cauda, and ends up in Malta. But that's for next time. 
So Paul thinks this is a very dangerous thing to do and uh, he believes this is a trip we should never undertake. Next one, please. Why did Paul speak out? It sounds as if he's got one of 276 passengers. Sorry, saying, <coughs> well, my opinion, I think we shouldn't do this. Sounds a bit presumptuous. But Paul had every right to say something. For one thing, next one, he was probably invited to speak as one of the most important people involved. The people who, uh, you, you have a, a situation in those days where the captain decided where the ship should go and everybody else just had to go with it. Every time you got into a dangerous situation like this, you would have a conference. So Julius, the centurion, would be there. Paul, as one of the distinguished passengers, would be there. Any other distinguished passengers would be there. And the owner of the ship, yeah, they didn't have a captain. It was just the owner that was there the, himself, and that was pretty normal for a ship like this. They would all get together and discuss what would happen. So probably Paul had every right to speak. Next one. He was a sailmaker, remember? That was his trade, and he knew an awful lot about sailing. He talked to many sailors and heard the stories over the years. Next one. He knew a lot about that part of the sea because it was where he was born. It's where he was grown up, and he crossed this bit of the Mediterranean many times, probably more than anybody else on board, because next one. Everybody knew he wanted to get to Rome. He didn't want to have a holiday in Crete. Oh, I think we should just stay in Crete for Christmas. It wasn't like that. He'd been desperate for two years to get to Rome. So if he was saying, stay here, don't go on, people would know it wasn't for his own reasons. Next one. Also, he'd been through three shipwrecks already. And next one. He'd travelled 3,500 miles in boats and made 11 to 12 sea journeys that we already know about. And plenty others that we don't know about as well. So he had every right to speak out. And he did speak out. And he did it properly. Okay, they turned down his advice, but later on when the shipwreck had happened, they realised he was right all along. And you see Paul in this journey just growing in authority until he really, he's the leader of the whole expedition. How did he do that? Well, next one, please. This, I think, is the last thing we want to look at this morning. You will be glad to hear It's about how Christians argue. Paul's principles. I think there are some things we can learn from the way he did it that help us learn how Christians can have an argument with one another, which they have been doing for over 2,000 years, let's face it, and still emerge friends and brothers at the end of it. What are those principles? Very, very quickly then, as we finish. Number one, speak clearly to those who need to hear. Paul didn't take a back seat in this one. <laughs> he knew that he had knowledge and information that the others needed. So he didn't just sit down in, in his cabin or whatever he had, just uh, saying, oh, they're doing this all wrong, they shouldn't be doing this, we're all going to die. Oh, it's disaster, disaster. We're doomed, we're doomed, I tell you. None of that, none of that, no. He went and spoke to the people who were most concerned, the centurion, the owner of the ship, and he spoke out clearly. It's too easy when you've got a problem with other Christians just to grumble in the background, isn't it? Or just to lobby those that you know will be sympathetic to their position. But Paul spoke clearly to the people who mattered. Then you give good reasons for your opinion. And Paul did that. <laughs> Paul, if you look at the words that Paul uses here, um, uh, the, the, the argument he uses is, 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 is uh, calculated to make sense to them. To the men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and be a great loss to ship and cargo. You can imagine the ship owner sitting there, oh, oh, really, okay. And to our own lives also, oh, okay, that's where the centurion would sit up and listen because there were people on board whom he had to get to Rome safely or he was in serious trouble. In fact, you remember at one point, later in the story, uh, the, the soldiers get out their, their, their swords and think, right, let's kill all the prisoners because that'll look better in Rome than if any of them escape. You mustn't let people escape. You mustn't let people be killed when they're under your guard. So Paul has strong reasons to give, and that's what we need to do. 
We need, it's not enough just to say, well, I, I don't think that's what we do. I, I just have a feeling that we've got to have some reasonable reasons. Then the third thing is, they didn't listen to him, <laughs> accept defeat graciously. Paul didn't go into a song, oh, right, well, okay, if that's the way you're going to do it, we're not going to talk to you again. No, he doesn't. He accepts defeat graciously. He allows him to carry on over the next 12 miles, even if he's sort of muttering to his mother, we're all doomed, we're all doomed. And uh, so he accepts defeat graciously. And the fourth thing is, you reopen the subject at the right time. There's a good time to give people ideas, and there's a bad time. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says, the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure, <laughs> even though a man's misery weighs heavily on him. You might feel like, I've got to say something, I've got to say something, I've got to say something. Your misery weighs heavily upon you, but it's not the right time. You can only speak when people are ready to listen. So when Paul has a second shot <laughs> later on, they're all prepared for it. And the, 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 the signal thing is this, when you do reopen the subject, don't stress how wrong everybody was. You should listen to me. Look, we're in this disaster. We'd never have been there if it was just for me. Look, we could have been fine. Oh, but did you listen to me? Oh, no, no, no. Oh. You know, you don't do that. And so you see Paul, when he actually has his second chance to speak, a bit beyond our verses, saying, guys, you should listen to me. But now. <laughs> in other words, let's be positive. Let's have no recriminations. Let's just move on and uh, see where we can go from here. So I think we've just had 12 verses. It's only the start of the whole story. There's a lot more shipwreck to come, but you start to see, don't you, why Paul, uh, why Luke rather, put it into the book of Acts. It teaches us a lot. I'm going to hand back to Ashley at this point.